This is the time in our worship where we sit under the preaching of the words of God. I'll have some of those words up on the screen for you. It's a huge delight to have the whole crew here. You have been giving me some time to do some writing this summer. I'm working on a field guide that would help all of us understand why we do what we do together as we make disciples in the life of Seven Mile Road Church. What I'm preaching to you whenever I do preach this summer is one chapter from that manuscript slash field guide slash book. Roy scared the life out of me the other day. He said, so you're writing a book? And I went, no, 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 I'm working on a field guide. Let's call it that to begin with. So what you hear today is what you've been giving the space for me to be writing for your good and for the good of the work that we're called to together. Everything is anchored in the text of Acts 20. Patty's read some of that, so I'm going to try and explicate that for you this morning. Let's pray and we'll do it. Father, visit us. It's your design, but you have a sinful man up here speaking to these people. So I pray that any foolishness from my mouth would fall off a cliff and the truth of your gospel of your way with us, would be super clear. Would you be gracious to all of us in that this morning? Hear and answer my prayer, I pray. Amen. Okay, let me start here today. I am not a foodie. I know that's not a very good thing to be right now in the life of American Bostonian culture. Maybe it is because my wife is a super fantastical Italian super chef and I eat Food Network worthy meals on an every other, every third night basis. I was thinking it may be because I grew up bunking at my grandmother's house in Queens in the summer and we would eat White Castle hamburgers and prepackaged Oscar Maya bologna on Wonder White Bread. And my taste buds no longer have the ability to distinguish between good and bad food. Maybe there is something biologically wrong with my palate, but I don't really care about the latest ingredients or the sexy new vegetable this month or the coolest new restaurant that just opened on Main Street in Melrose. For me, basically, this is how it works I'm hungry, there's some food. I'm good. Let's eat. Now, this lack of foodiness in me has caused some relational conflict on our pastor team because these brothers are foodies. The the other day, you think I'm kidding. The other day, I brought a peanut butter and jelly sandwich wrapped in aluminum foil to a lunch meeting upstairs. You should have seen the looks. Then I confessed to Clint that I did not know that there were multiple kinds of vinegar. And it was this look of disgust. Last month, Grace and I were with Dan and Caroline in Southern California at the Acts 29 church planting conference. And Dan said to me, hey, do you guys want to go to Koreatown for some Korean barbecue? And he asked me with this vigor, this enthusiasm. And I just went, yeah, whatever. And he was like surprised and I think offended. I think he either expected me to be like, no way, man. I am 
on my vacation and I'm not eating Korean barbecue. Or he expected me to just start weeping. Oh, I've always wanted an invitation to Koreatown for Korean barbecue. Then take my iPhone with me and just Instagram the whole meal with my boy Dan. I'm drinking the green tea now. I'm trying the kimchi, chopsticks. They're still going with the chopsticks. You know, we have the fork and the spoon. I talked to the waitress, but instead, what did he get from me? Shrug shoulders. What are they a sign of? When you shrug your shoulders, they are a sign of disinterest, right? Of emotional detachment, of just not really being invested in a decision or a situation. They are the physical display of a heart that says, hey, it doesn't really matter. We are all like this with a lot of things. I'm like this with food. I'm like this with animals. I'm sorry. I don't think your dog is cute. I might love you and tell you that if I come to your house, but I didn't even cry when Bambi died. <laughs> we were at an aquarium, and this guy in this you know, swimsuit thing was all intense about the 27 fuzzy-eared seals left in the Arctic Circle. And I was like, cars, Netflix, political conventions, fashion, None of these things move me. If they did, if I was invested, I would not shrug my shoulders, but what I do instead? I would shed tears. I would be moved to tears. First Super Bowl I ever watched, I was nine years old, Redskins versus Dolphins. I was a rabid Dolphins fan at the time. Not because I had ever been to Florida, not because I loved sea mammals, not because they had any recognizable superstars at the time. Dan Marino was not yet even on the team. It was because my cousin loved the dolphins. And you know, when your cousin is six years older than you, whatever he loves, you love. Game day in the basement, 301 St. John's Avenue. I'm geared up for my first Super Bowl. I'm all in. It never crossed my nine-year-old mind, that the Dolphins might lose the game. That just never registered. Until fourth quarter, John Riggins ran over left tackle, 43 yards, and the Dolphins lost. When they did, I did not just go, let me go upstairs and play some asteroids on the Atari 2600. What did I do? I cried like a nine-year-old whose, whose team just lost the Super Bowl. My mom couldn't even console me. Wait a minute, why the tears? Because I was emotionally invested in the outcome. Tears are the language of, hey, this really matters. Tears can be happy tears or they can be sad tears, but what can they not be? They cannot be disinterested. There's no such thing as detached tears. So we cry when we get into college, and we cry when we don't get into college. Why? We were invested in that outcome. 
We cry at weddings and we cry at divorces. Why? Because we were invested in that marriage. The most disgusting picture that I've seen on Twitter in the last month was an ex-husband and wife smiling at their divorce. And the tag was, happy to go about our new life. No, no. You're supposed to weep because marriage is beautiful. We cry when the stick turns blue at home and the home pregnancy test says, yes, pregnant. Is it blue? Pink? Pink or blue? We weep when the doctor says, you've lost your son. You've lost your daughter. Why? We're invested in that life. And that is a life in there. We cry if we hit the lottery, and we cry if we lose our job. Why? You are invested in your bank account. We cry when dad comes home from war. We meet him at the airport with signs. We cry when he doesn't. Why? We are invested in dad. What is it that binds all of these tears together? Something matters to us. And there's a lot of things in your life that can matter to you, not matter to you. Either way, it's neutral. You can be into it or not be into it. Food, dogs, sports, cars, music, landscaping, One Direction. Who's crying? Pokemon Go. I've seen people weeping over that in the streets. If you're into it, great. If you're not, it's fine as well. The list goes on. But there is one thing. The work of the gospel carried out in the life and mission of Jesus' church that every good pastor, every true saint, every decent member of a church, they were invested with tears and that. Over and over again in Scripture, the Spirit of God makes plain to us that we are to be emotionally invested in our life together as Jesus' people. Because the work of the gospel matters. All right, we could take four hours and go through all the texts that show this. We've got Nehemiah. When Nehemiah hears that Jerusalem... And whenever you hear Jerusalem in the Older Testament of your Bible, think the church or these people, the people of Jesus. When he hears that Jerusalem is in shambles and its people are in disgrace and they're doing terribly, what does Nehemiah do? Does he just shrug his shoulders and go about his business? Scripture says, as soon as I heard these words, I sat down and I wept and I mourned for days. Nehemiah was rightly invested in the glory of the city of God and the good of the people of God. Jerusalem mattered to him. How about the Psalm 119 psalmist? Longest chapter in your Bible. He is waxing and waxing and waxing and waxing poetic about the beauty and the truth and the brilliance of the words of God. And then this thought enters his mind how so few people love 
and obey the words of God and what comes out of his pen in this poem. Dan read this. My eyes shed streams of tears because people don't keep your law. Whoa. Was this saint invested in the obedience of the people of God to the words of God? Mattered to him. There's Jesus' apostle John. Have you ever read his letters in your Bible? They're actually a little bit uncomfortable for someone non-sentimental like me because they're so thick with emotion and like sappy, beautiful, deep love phrases. Whenever I'm done reading one of John's letters, I feel like my grandfather gave me one of those sloppy, soaking, wet, scratchy grandpa breath kisses. You know those? That say, I love you and I'm invested in you. That's what I feel like when I'm done with John's letters. I just feel like that just happened to me from the Bible. He's writing to his beloved children and he says this. I have no greater joy than to hear that my children are walking in the truth. Does everybody feel this? So I don't know if John was a foodie. He might have been, right? He might have been pumped about kale salad and bubble tea and balsamic vinegar or red wine vinegar. There's a varied number of vinegars. You didn't know this? Okay. He might have had a German shepherd and thought he was something special. I don't know. What I do know is this. If you would have taken all of the passions in John's life and put them in a row, top to bottom, the first thing on the list with no rivals in sight would have been the people of God, the work of the gospel, the health of his church, gospel truth, mixing with gospel culture, the truth and walking in it. When he saw that those two things had come together in people like you and me, what happened with John? Tears of joy, no greater joy. How about Jesus' apostle Peter? He's writing to pastors and elders and to them, through them, to the congregation. And he says these words, shepherd the flock of God that is among you, not under compulsion, but willingly. And then he says, eagerly. If you wanted to put this in a paraphrase or a translation, you could say that the command of scripture is love your church, not with shrugged shoulders, but instead with tears. Can you see it in there? And then, of course, there's Jesus' apostle Paul. This is what I'm swimming in and writing about. Two different times in his speech to the pastors in the city of Ephesus, he, he uses these two emotionally charged words to describe his ministry among them twice. He says, with tears. Uh, the first time that we hear with tears, this is what Patty read to you. He is giving you the triad of pillars that his ministry among them was built on. Here's what he said. 
you yourselves know how I lived among you the whole time from the first day that I set foot in Asia, serving the Lord with all humility and with tears and with trials. So there's humility and there's trials and there's tears. He says, Paul was humble. Paul was opposed. And what? Paul was emotionally invested. Brothers, this is one of the ways that you know that my ministry among you was genuine right here. You saw me weep. I cried a lot in front of you, with you, for you. And not just once in a great sentimental while, all the time. In other words, I wept enough over the work that you yourselves know about it because you saw me do it. The man went through a ton of Kleenex in his gospel ministry because it mattered to him. And then the word with tears appears a second time toward the end of his speech where he's trying to communicate the relentless urgency with which he loved these people. And he says, be alert, remembering that for three years I did not cease day and night, night and day, to admonish everyone. And then this beautiful prepositional phrase, here it is, with tears. In other words, I was not going through the motions with you. I was not Charlie Brown's teacher, wah, 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 standing at the front of the class, just waiting for the bell, the ring, or summertime to get here already. My ministry among you was not detached and distracted playing fruit ninja. Ooh, I got the big watermelon. Holy smokes, look at that thing. I was not punching a clock with you. I was invested. It mattered to me that you thrived. Have you ever seen a bad dad or mom at the playground? There's a wicked, tall, dangerous slide. And they barely even give any directions to their kids because they're busy on Facebook and they just go, oh, don't get hurt, honey. And that's it. What happens when Billy falls from the top of the ladder and there's blood and craziness? What does the bad mom or dad say? I told him to be careful. Well, you did, but you didn't. Not with the specificity or what? The urgency that was required. You weren't really invested in the safety of your child on this day at this playground with that slide. Have you ever seen a really good mom or dad getting ready to give their teenager the keys to the car for the first time ever? What's gone on for months before that moment? They've been pleading with this child. You have to put your seatbelt on. You must avoid route one between the hours of two and seven at all costs. For the love of God, please do not Snapchat while you are driving. And then when the moment comes and the teenager gets behind the wheel and pulls out for the very first time, what does the good ma'am the good mom and the good dad do. What do they do? They cry. 
Why the tears? Because they know there's like a 2% chance they're getting that car back in the same condition with which it drove away, right? My car. Why do they cry? Because they're invested in that drive right there. They're invested in that life, in that soul. Do you feel that? This is how Paul pastored these people. Tears from the deepest part of his soul. And that is how you are called to live here and to be about the work of the gospel in the life of these churches. The glory of God is too important. The people of God are too precious. The mission of God is too big of a deal for us to do this work with our shoulders shrugging. We have tried to live this way together with you. We've given ourselves to being emotionally invested in the work. I got a lot of stories. I'll give you one. And these are the kind of things that I'm writing about. December 30th, 2007. It is the Sunday between Christmas and New Year's. Do you know about this Sunday? It's that dreaded Sunday when church attendance drops like a stone on Jupiter. Jupiter's a big planet, so gravity pulls. Okay. (laughs) It's the Sunday that nobody, not even like the skinny 23-year-old seminarian with a semester of Greek under their belt, wants to have to preach and prepare for. It's the Sunday where hopeful sermons go to die. (laughs) Only a preacher knows these things. If a sermon gets preached in the forest and there's no one around to hear it, did you preach it? I don't know, but that's the day that you find out. That Sunday was coming, and Ajay and I were just preaching together for the first time, and in our preaching meeting, we looked at each other, and we were like, you're preaching. No, you're preaching. You're preaching. No, you're preaching. How about none of us preaches? Let's find somebody else to do it. So we found someone. It was this actually awesome guy who had been on the mission field in Egypt for seven years, and he was back in the States, good friend of ours. And we said, hey, would you like to preach on Sunday? And yes. So I gave him a big hug. I was excited. Here's a rough transcript of my conversation with my good friend about preaching this sermon. Basically, I said, I need you to do two things. Number one, tell us about how your heart was captured for lost people in Egypt and you ended up over there. And number two, tell us some stories about what missional living has looked like for you in Egypt. We need to hear that. You got 30 minutes. Can you do it? This was his exact answer. Yes, pastor, I understand. Have you ever witnessed a car spinning out in the snow on a, on a New England afternoon? Have you ever seen someone begin to fall at the top of a flight of stairs? Have you ever seen a toddler who's in his high chair and he kicks the table and he starts going this way? Do you know that feeling right there? When something bad is about to happen and you cannot do anything about it so everything just slows down? That was this sermon. I sat in the very front row as a means of encouragement 
Two minutes in, I realized, oh, dear God, please, no. Because my friend, who I love, and if he was here, we would be laughing. He chose to preach for an hour with a 57-slide PowerPoint with size 7 font, comic sans, quoting the KGV, KJV, on the doctrine of God. I love the doctrine of God, but not on this day. I had nowhere to run. I had nowhere to hide. You can't call a timeout at that point, right? So you're just going to endure it. By the time he was done, my face was redder than Kurt Schilling's sock, you know? I got up to lead us through the end of the liturgy. I looked back, and I was in total awe that there were still people in the room. I mumbled through the liturgy, and I left out the front left door of the church over in Malden, and I just started walking. December 30th, it was 33, 34 degrees and pouring rain out, and I just started walking. I don't remember seeing a car, a pedestrian. I didn't look when I crossed the street. I don't remember all the puddles that I stomped through. I cried. I vented to myself. I was so frustrated with me and Ajay and my poor communication with my brother. By the time I looked up, I was in Medford Square, which is about a mile and a half, two-mile walk from the church. So then I turned around and I walked back. I got back to the sanctuary. Grace and maybe two of you were there. I look like a mile of bad road. You know what that looks like? That was me. Grace looks at me with that confused look that she's given me for 20 years. She says, what is wrong with you? And I said something like, this work really matters to me. And our people, I led poorly today, and our people were led poorly, and I just don't, it's too important that I let that happen. So I'm just frustrated wiping my tears. Some folks would hear that sermon and they would say, what? You need some help. One Sunday, one sermon, it's no big deal. Chill out, cruise. There would be some goodness to that kind of counsel, right? So I confess that I have the kind of personality that, personality that I will dive on concrete for a loose ball if my team is down by two. That could be good counsel for me in places. I am not commending to anyone in here today that we do our church life with over-the-top drama 24-7, and I am not inviting you into running at an emotional pitch that will burn us all out after a month. That's not what I'm saying. But what I want you to hear from me is be careful with that kind of counsel. If it moves you to a place where you never cry at all. If its end is to disinvest you because people will hurt you and things will get difficult and the people in the life of the church will be irrational and unpredictable and unreliable and passive aggressive or worse than that. And so what you really need to do is to Guard your heart. That sounds very pious. That sounds reasonable even. There is a time and a place for that conversation. Yes. But what I am contending with you today 
What I'm actually inviting you to see with us in the life of this church is that the clear teaching of Scripture is not that you be careful with and you guard your heart, but that you throw your heart into the fray of gospel ministry, that you throw your heart into this work in a way that you might walk a round trip of four miles wanting to see it done well with tears. If there is any temptation in an American church like ours or any church in an American suburb, it is not that we would get overly invested in each other and in this work. That is not our temptation. Come on. What is our temptation? What we would do, what we tend to do, is to go through the motions of church membership, to go through the motions of pastoral ministry, to shrug our way through our life together. Is that not the American temptation? So an unprepared or a quasi-heretical sermon got preached. Nobody's been baptized since the Spice Girls were a thing. We're running $50,000 behind our budget for this year. I didn't even know we had a budget. Gossip and slander have become the norm for our discourse. My gospel community hasn't loved anybody for like two years. Do you see this? That is our danger. It's always been the primary danger for the life of established churches, Christendom. Do a church history class, you will see in the 1500s, this happened in continental Europe. It's called professionalism with your clergy. It's called nominalism with the people. Men like John Calvin, John Knox pleaded with tears for change. It happened in England in the 1800s. Men like Richard Baxter pleaded with tears for change. It's happened in the 1900s in these United States, and men like John Piper have pleaded for change with tears. And it could happen here. Seven Mile, you do not belong to this church like you belong to Costco or to Planet Fitness. We are not working a toll booth here together. We are loving and leading and serving the blood-bought saints of Jesus Christ. And we are to be invested in this work. When you do this, you are taking your cue, not just from Nehemiah and Paul and Peter and John, but you're taking your cue from Jesus. Has anybody ever been more emotionally invested in his work than Jesus of Nazareth? Read through the Gospels. He is warmed by the centurion's faith. He is frustrated at the apostles' unbelief. He is 
angered at the desecration of his dad's house. He is delighted at Zacchaeus' humble faith. And do not miss this. You know about this, right? It's not just the trivial answer to the shortest verse in the Bible. It's the tone of Jesus of Nazareth's life and ministry. Jesus wept. He wept over the city of God. He wept over the death of Lazarus. Aristotle was totally and terribly mistaken about God. God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit. Not an unmoved mover, but a deeply, eternally, intimately moved mover. The people that you are sent to matter to the heart of God. How can they not matter to us? So let's be emotionally invested in the life, in the mission of our church. Let's love a city like Jesus did. Let's love specific people like Jesus did. When people ask me about what we're doing at Seven Mile Road, I never get more than a couple of sentences without saying something like this. We're really invested in the people, unchurched, ungospeled, who live just north of Boston. And then, inevitably, I start crying wherever I am. I was with Blake and Audrey down here at Whole Foods, welcoming them into the life of the church. I said those words. And I'm in the middle of like a fell sandwich and I start crying. The lady next to me is like, are you all right? And I'm like, I just love you. She was like, let me go buy some apples at $4 a pound. Why that conversation in those tears? I don't know about you, but it matters to me that when the, our neighbors and the people in these cities stand before Jesus, they have to be able to say, there was a witness, clear and compelling, to your gospel. Because there was these people at this goofy named church, Seven Mile Road, and they cared enough, they were invested enough to plant churches just north of Boston. It cost them a wicked lot of time and money and energy. It cost some of them their reputation. It cost them blood and sweat. And please tell me you've been listening. And tears. But they were invested in their work. That's what we're going for together. All right, application question, and we'll pray. When was the last time that you shed a tear over something related to the life and the mission of our church? You say, Cruz, I'm a New Englander. I don't cry. All right, when was the last time you sniffled? Whatever it looks like for your heart to move with investment, whatever that looks like, when was the last time that happened? For some of you, it was like last week, last month, and I love you for it. 
I can't tell you how many times I talk with folks in this church who are hustling. And mid-sentence, they'll just tear up with tears because the work matters. For some of you, you can't remember the last time that that happened. For some of you, the answer is never. I am inviting you to repent, to believe the gospel with us, which includes that this work is worth our tears. Let's pray together. Father, thank you so much for the models of Scripture. Nehemiah, the psalmist, John, Peter, Paul, James, your son. Would you forgive us when we go through the life of this church and the work of the gospel as if it doesn't matter? Do keep us from too much drama. Do keep us from running at a pace that would kill us. That's not what we're asking you for today, Father. But would you break the hearts of the people in this room that we might be moved by the cause of the fame of Jesus Christ. We don't want to do this work any other way but with tears. Would you move on our hearts and get us there, I pray. Hear my prayer and answer. Amen. Amen.